and welcome to episode 121 of Tea or Books. My name's Simon, with me is... Rachel, hello. Hello. Uh, in today's episode, in the first half, we'll be discussing Should Books Have a Message? In the second half, two novels by Jane Gardam called Old Filth and The Man in the Wooden Hat. But before we get into all of that, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Um, just... Settling into my new job, which I know there have been some queries about. So um, just to clarify, I have gone back to teaching. So I am um, teaching again. I left my job at the Globe for reasons I will not discuss publicly. And um, So mysterious, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> if you want the gas guys. Um, and <laughs> I am now teaching back in London in an international school, um, English, as I uh, I've always did beforehand. And I'm enjoying it very much. It's nice to be uh, talking about books all day again and not just talking about Shakespeare. In fact, I'm not talking about any <laughs> Shakespeare. I'm deliberately not teaching any Shakespeare. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's good. I'm enjoying it. Nice. And um, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've just finished um, reading A Town Called Solace by Mary ah. Lawson. I will not say anything about because, obviously, we are going to do an episode. We have said that, haven't we? We haven't yet, but we, yes, next episode is all all Mary Lawson, all time, the whole episode, yes. Yeah, um, and we'll have a special guest for that one. I'll leave that up to you to to discuss. Yes, I don't think we're going to say who it is yet. But no, there'll be a special, guest. There'll be a special guest. So I very much enjoyed that. I mean, the big news for me this month is that I've started blogging again. Um, yes. So I've written a post about A Town Called Solace, if you're interested in reading it. I have moved to Substack, which... I'm enjoying very much um, as a as a platform. I felt I needed a bit of a change after restarting the blog and wanting to sort of take it in a slightly different direction. But you can find the link to the Substack on my old WordPress page, which is still open. Um, there has been some confusion over that. I just want to clarify, you do not have to pay to subscribe. Please. Excellent. There is an option to do so, but please don't feel any pressure. And what is the, uh, yes, what's the URL for your, your blog? That is a good question, isn't it? Um, it is booksnob.substack.com, but it's just, uh, there's no two S's. My old blog used to have two S's because somebody else stole booksnob.wordpress.com. <laughs> but, um, this is just book, B-O-O-K-S-N-O-B.substack.com. Excellent. Um, yeah. And I'm subscribing as we talk. Here we go. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I just finished reading that, and my um, my next one I've got just on my nightstand ready to read is, um, listeners might remember that we did an episode on Celia Dale a while back. Um, mm. You'll have to remind me of the name of the book. Can you remember the one we did? Oh, gosh, what was it called? Mm. Mm, I also don't remember what it was, but it was very good. It was very good. you know what? I'm going to look it up right now. I feel like Hands was in the title. Helping Hand? Was it Helping Hand? Oh, helping Hand. You're quite right. So Celia Dale, for um, people who, who don't know her, is um, was a, a kind of mid-century writer of, would we say, domestic noir? Is that an yes, I think I would, yes. Yeah. Um, and she's recently been rediscovered, republished by Daunt Books. And a Helping Hand was the first one they republished. And I've happened to, my new school is is right is in Marlebone, right by the Daunt Bookshops. So uh, unfortunately, dangerously close for a lunch break. <laughs> and I 
I popped in there the other day and I saw that they'd republished another one of Celia Dale's novels, which is called um, Sheep's Clothing. Mm. Very intriguing premise. So it's about two women who meet while in a women's prison. And while they're in the prison, they concoct a scheme to um, take advantage of vulnerable women when they come out of prison. So it's quite along the same lines, actually, of a helping hand in the sense of a woman taking advantage of other vulnerable people. I haven't started it yet, but I'm excited to read it. I've not read a a book featuring female prisoners before, so it'll be a first for me. And I will be able to report back next time. Wow! Yeah, that sounds um, like it would be. Yeah, I mean, having hand was brilliant, but it was quite tough to read at times. It just sounds yeah. like it might also be yeah, a bit sad. Yeah. Um, but uh, I actually have a copy myself, so maybe you can maybe it'll be a future episode. Who knows? Perfect. Um, so Simon, you've been on your travels since we last did a podcast. I have. I've been to actual Canada. I went to Vancouver and Toronto with my brother. Um, saw lovely Claire, who was on the, our last episode. Um, whilst I was in Vancouver, we went to some bookshops together um, and met a fan of the podcast called Deborah. Hi, Deborah, in Toronto. So that was lovely. Um, I did buy 28 books whilst oh. I was there. Oh, and my God. <laughs> I honestly don't know how I got them back because my bag was quite full when I arrived there. And it's just by the by the grace of God that I managed to get it back. I didn't even have a fair excess baggage, which I was fully expecting to have to pay. Um, I did concentrate on uh, well, North American authors, so mostly Canadian. There were some Americans, but I tried to only buy books that would be harder to get here. And I yeah. bought a lot of Margaret Lawrence or books about Margaret Lawrence. So um, that was that was my main sort of thing I was for main book I was hoping to find. Um and um, I did actually buy Mary Dawson. I bought Rodens, uh, who is Canadian, although she's lived in the UK since 1968, I believe. Yeah. It was interesting to me how many authors um, were claimed by Canada. I wrote this on my blog. Like if, if someone was born in Canada and then lived somewhere else for the rest of their life, Canadian. If someone was born somewhere else and then moved to Canada, Canadian. You know, yeah. I, I think I'm probably count as Canadian now because I've been there for two weeks. So they'll, they'll take anyone um, <laughs> and put, put them in a National Library of Canada edition. People like, people like Brian Moore, who I always thought was Irish. Turns out, no, Canadian. Wow. Uh, but yes, had a lovely time. Um, didn't do that many bookish things, I guess, other than the buying of books don't think i went to any literary landmarks but uh but had a lovely lovely time and um yeah fully particularly i mean i, I don't know if this is going to alienate some of our listeners but i particularly love vancouver uh we really recommend oh that was something we did we did go to see to it's called bard bard on the beach which is a year-round shakespeare theater in vancouver oh. um, and we saw a production of as you like it with with songs by the beatles in it so the possibly the most british thing imaginable uh, <laughs> in vancouver so yeah, that was fun, and um, yeah, I did. I read some Canadian books while I was there. I read an Ethel Wilson book called Love and Saltwater that I really enjoyed. Um, I read one of the Margaret Lawrence books. I bought some collection of essays. I read the Mary Lawson, and I read a collection of Alice Munro short stories called Love of a Good Woman. So I tried to theme my reading as well, which was fun. In fact, the um, one of the Alice Munro short stories was set around the corner from the Airbnb I was staying in. So that that was nice. Oh, that's nice. That sounds like a wonderful trip. Yeah, loved it. Really fun. Not at all restful. It was exhausting, but it was great. 
Um, and now I'm reading, well, I've just finished some books for the 1962 Club, which is next week as we record. Um, I'll just mention too, actually, the two books that are lesser known books by better known authors, I guess. So one, one's called An End to Running by Lynn Rebanks, um, which is her second novel after The L-Shaped Room uh, and is about uh, a sort of wannabe playwright who um, starts a relationship with his secretary, who is the the secretary is the narrator of the first half and then then for various reasons they moved to a kibbutz in israel and he becomes the narrator of the second half it was very good we enjoyed it um and the other one is the double heart by latisse cooper known of, of for the new house and um national provincial is that right uh yes yeah yes two persephone books and this one is later than some of some of the ones she's better known for and again has a wannabe playwright in it turns out there were a lot of wannabe playwrights around in 1962 uh and he goes off with uh well no no he goes off with a married woman who they fall in love at first sight and abandon their families and at first i thought it was gonna be a bit tedious if you expect me to care about them but as it turns out it's really a novel about how that affects all the other people in their life uh and the main characters the main two in that couple are pretty appalling uh, particularly at first and it's more about you know what do their mothers think what do their mother's neighbors think what do etc etc um and surprisingly modern at times as well it gives us some stuff about uh gangs and sexual assault and all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect from the author of the new house no i wouldn't (laughs) yeah she kept going for a long time I i read one of her books it was published in 1980 so uh yeah she had a long career so for the first half, we're going to talk about should books have a message? Um, and it's quite a, a sort of, I guess, a, a vague title, but I, it struck me as I was reading, or I saw a tweet um, about someone bemoaning that in a poetry prize, one of the winners, or maybe someone who almost won, talked about how the political message of a poem was the most important thing about it. And they were saying this, you know, poetry should not be about um having a, what, one single meaning or, or, yeah, it should be open to interpretation, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which I thought was an interesting place to start. And I don't think there are many writers who would do something where the, you know, the message is the whole thing. It wouldn't, you know, no, certainly one a novelist at least would do something where it was just a completely polemical. But I think you can divide novels at least loosely into those that have some sort of message or statement or you know, insight they're trying to give and those that are just about life and just about people in a different way um we may find that it is a false dichotomy but uh let's let's see where we go and, and uh rachel you said that you you had uh some initial responses and thoughts uh go for it yeah i think um being an english teacher in a secondary school we obviously teach a lot of books that are are quite message focused um and certainly for me, there are some books I won't touch with a barge pole now because they're too, for me, just they're just about a political message and they're, the, the writing falls to the wayside. So there are some books like that, such as, I mean, I think the most famous one is Animal Farm, mm-hmm. which is, for anyone who doesn't know, um, it's, it's basically a, a thinly disguised um, allegory of, of Stalinist Russia. Um, and there's also um, 1984 essentially is a, is a political message as well, or well as again. Um, and 
those those two novels I mean yes there are characters yes you can talk about the characters but essentially they they only exist to get across this the political message at the heart of the text um to a I think to the same extent, I mean, this isn't a novel, but it's a play in Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley, very similar. You've got characters, but they only really exist to get across the political message of socialism that's at the heart of the text. Um, and I think to some extent, also another classic that you often get taught at school, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. There's a, a political message at the heart of that, which ultimately the characters are just there to serve. It's not, yes, it's, it can be argued it's a building's Roman. We get to see the growth of Scout from a child, from innocence to experience, etc. cetera. But um, ultimately, the what, what is the book remembered for? It's a book about civil rights. And um, so I think... Books with message, you know, every book, as you say, has a message of sorts. But I, I think often that message is possible for a different reader to interpret a different message from it. The, the message is is up to interpretation. It's it's open to people to come to the text with where there are in where they are in their lives and to take something different from it. Um, and there's but there's a difference between that and a type of text that has at its heart a very definite message that is unmistakable and cannot be interpreted in any different way and so you go into the text and and you know right from the start oh I'm supposed to learn about this or I'm supposed to believe this yeah and I think I was yeah or was the first person I thought of as well where it is very clearly you know, here is this is it's done metaphorically but it is very clearly here is something I consider about the current state of the nation or or, or the world out in the future of it and you know there aren't really multiple interpretations. I mean, there's nuances, I'm sure, that different people will come up with. Mm. Um, yeah, And then other things I was thinking of, um, I guess sort of modern version of a particular modern way ways, like Noughts and Crosses by Marjorie Blackman, yeah. um, seeing other social, just not social justice, but like social topic issue, like um, some of the things that Jodie Pico writes about, or uh, I thought about Passing Go by Libby Pavis, which is a novel about a tra- trans character when before that became something that was you know all over headlines all over the places going back maybe 25 years yeah. uh, and it was i guess in that case taking um a sort of area of society that wasn't really discussed and, and humanizing um the, the heroine of that um and i mean whilst there is yeah as, as you say there's there's some nuance to these things and every book has some sort of message so there are books like that which clearly have a purpose yeah. and and you know fail or succeed i guess to the extent that they achieve that which in some ways, you think of the books that would date more, um, particularly if they're tackling issues that are no longer issues. One that's just come to mind is Holy Deadlock by A.P. Herbert, which is essentially about trying to um, loosen divorce laws. It was this huge course 11 in the 1930s because uh, he was sort of showing the injustice of the current divorce laws. I imagine that doesn't have such an audience now that divorce laws in the late, you know, starting the late 1930s and, and several reforms since have become much, it's obviously much easier to divorce now that that book is not a classic in the same way that, you know, some other books of the period are that aren't that attached to topical issues. But then things like To Come Kid and Mockingbird um, do still feel very relevant, I guess. So, uh, yeah, mm. it's, um, I guess it depends how closely you're wedded to a particular very contemporary issue or if you're tapping into something that is a bit broader. Um, 
but yeah. yeah either way they, they sort of rely on some sort of context of this is something i need to address don't they and if they're yeah. loose to that context it, yeah, this, they don't really have a purpose no i think you're right and thinking about novels with a kind of uh, tied to a, a social message i think if we think of trollope for example his palace series is all about the corruption in government and it's very much tied to what was happening in you know gladstone's israeli governments at the time in the 19th century but we can extrapolate from that i mean sadly um the political system in the UK has not changed that much since Trollope's time. Mm. <laughs> you can still read it now and see very recognisable characters, very recognisable situations. And and the, that message within the book of the essential corruption of, of the government and corruption of the you know institution of government um, is an obvious message, but it's one that continues to have resonance. And therefore, it's, um, it's not tied to a specific moment in time. Um, though I don't I mean I've not read this but I'm wondering whether I'm sure you have and you'll be able to comment on it um, one of his novels The Warden is that not tied up very much with religious arguments that perhaps we wouldn't um, that were very relevant at the time but wouldn't be now I think that's a really interesting one I have read it I love it um, it's basically about let's see if I can remember the details it's something to do with um, receiving money from arms houses or something to do with like tied land. So this extremely niche issue that mm-hmm. even at the time I imagine didn't bother that many people, but something about the brilliance of Trollope is that he is able to make it about characters. And, you know, it's more like how does a nice caring person deal with the dilemma where he isn't technically in the wrong, but still feels guilty about it. Um, and yeah, Trollope's good enough that that, that, that part of it still feels fresh and modern and relevant even when the specific issue you know i has, has never mattered in the in the you know 150 years or something since it was published yeah. um but i think it does take a writer of trollope's quality to be able to tie it so so precisely to something like that and, and it's still um feel relevant i mean i guess case in point is that there's any number of his contemporaries that we don't still read who, who maybe were concerned with mm. um yeah specific issues at the time yeah, I think if if we if we sort of stay in in that period of time, if we think about Dickens's novels, I mean, these are are novels intensely to do with social issues. And while the characters might be the people that we remember today, certainly at the time they were known as social issue novels. And Charles mm-hmm. Dickens used his novels as a means to put political pressure um, on other institutions to to make changes his uh, a christmas carol um had a huge impact on the the kind of work laws at the time and hard times had which i think probably is his most um didactic um book and one that that does have a very clear message about the didacticism of the education system and the limited way in which people were educated um, again, is a very much a single issue book mm. with characters. I mean, we all remember Gradgrind, maybe if we've read it, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think you could say much else about the plot. But what you remember is what it's about, and um, the same I think for a lot of his his other novels. Um, and for me, that's why they're mm. they're not very successful as an example of of nineteenth century literature. I don't like Dickens very much because I think his characters are just cardboard cutouts to to put across his often um 
you know, he's he's very socially minded um, messages, but his depictions are of of people's lives and so on and so forth are are all there to hammer home um, a particular viewpoint, which and a view of society that perhaps um, I don't know is not always helpful. You know, he polarizes, and um, I think that's and makes things too black and white which that lack of nuance is what for me makes him such a clumsy novelist yeah and and to give sort of the opposing view i guess uh well i love dickens but i don't love him as a social novelist and and i know he's often considered a social novelist i love him as a comic novelist and yeah i think if i was reading it just for the social issues i would I would find it a bit tedious, but um, for me, the novel's about character and comedy, and so I guess I'm, I'm choosing to, to get out of them what I want to find, not worry too much about the stuff, which may well be the reason you wrote them in the first place, as you say. Yeah. I guess the flip side, we should talk about books that don't have a message. I mean, that sounds very um, anodyne, but I mean, there's lots of books which might you know, include class issues or gender issues or all these other things, but it's not the purpose of the book. So I think, you know, our classic Jane Austen, like those those books aren't they they're not they don't have a solitary social message they're trying to get across, I would say. They're comedies of manners, they're uh, you know, about self discovery and that sort of thing. Rather yeah. than you know, people often criticize her for not talking about the, the war and or, you know, slavery or these other topical issues that she might hint at in the margins, but but they're not the points of the books. And going on, there's so many books, obviously, that I love from and that you love from the interwar period that, you know, you can't avoid writing about class in a British novel of the interwar period, really. It's probably going to get in there somewhere, but they're not a, they're not necessarily about class. I, you know, I think of a lot of Persephone books, the first one that comes to mind is Hostages of Fortune, Elizabeth Cambridge, wonderful book, but uh, arguably is about the people and their setting and is not a not a book with a message and that's a you know a prototype for dozens and dozens of of books that uh that i love and um i don't know how many of them would say that they i don't, I don't know if an author would necessarily acknowledge that they don't have any message or if that feels um maybe they all think they do but i bet certainly when i'm reading them i'm not looking for a message and i'm not expecting to find one no i think it, it's about wanting to communicate some well, I think all writers, obviously, all artists in general, want to communicate something. But mm-hmm. um, you know, this is something I was just talking to my uh, some of my students about today. This idea that as soon as a, a writer has finished writing something and puts the work out into the world, they can't control how it's perceived and they can't control what mm-hmm. uh, what messages readers take from it. So setting out to communicate something specific as a writer or to say well my book's going to be about this and this is what people are going to get from it I mean you can't ever guarantee that that's what people are going to read it and see um I mean I I always remember when I went to a talk by Ian McEwan and one somebody stood up and talked about a particular you know theme he'd found really powerful and this message that he was expressing in his book and Ian McEwan just laughed and said oh god I hadn't even realized that you know so it's um (laughs) being a kind of, you know, trying to, I think, find messages or trying to to kind of come to some definitive understanding of what an author was trying to communicate, I think is always going to be, um, you know, a wild goose chase, essentially, because we, the, and is that the purpose of reading a novel? Is that the purpose of engaging with a text? It's about finding meaning in a text that speaks to where you are at your moment in life. Um, 
yeah, there has to be a reason that someone's written a novel rather than you know a pamphlet or even right. uh, you know work of nonfiction that you know it's, it's got to be doing something different to be a successful novel. I, I would say exactly, and I, I think if you set out to write a novel that is a political treatise, then you're probably in the wrong job. Yeah, I'm currently reading um, one of the other books I'm reading is Middle England by Jonathan Coe, oh, yes. uh, which, which turns out to be the third in the trilogy. But hopefully, it doesn't matter that I've not read the other two. Um, <laughs> And I've seen it described as his Brexit novel quite often. I'm about halfway through and Brexit has just been mentioned. It hasn't happened yet, but the, the, the Tory manifesto is out. Um, and so far, I'm really enjoying the first half because it is just a novel about characters. And there's already hints that I'm getting that uh, as it becomes more about Brexit, as it takes centre stage, that whilst it's not going to say you know, Brexit shouldn't have happened, it is going to put pro-Brexit feeling in the mouths of characters who are clearly not meant to empathize with or consider intelligent i guess and i mean i was and i was and am anti-brexit but i'm not looking for a novel necessarily that is you know clumsy and presenting that i'm interested in it being in there but um i don't i i what i've i guess what i'd like to do is get to the end of a novel about brexit if i'm reading it and not know what the author thinks about brexit because mm. i'm more interested in what the characters think about brexit and i you know i think i'll probably still enjoy this novel but I don't think I'm going to be at any loss as to what Jonathan Coe thinks about Brexit. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think if an author can get to the end and you're like, I don't, I honestly don't know what he thinks or she thinks, I think that's a really successful presentation of character. Yeah, I quite agree. I think that the author's voice should be as neutral as possible within the text, as far as it's possible to to do that, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it sounds like maybe we can come to a decision uh, if if you're happy to, unless you've got anything else you wanted to add. No, happy to come to a decision. Yeah, I think generally I prefer a book that doesn't have a message. I prefer a book to be primarily about the characters. Um, yeah, and the characters might have messages, but I'd rather that the author didn't. Yeah, I'm the same. If there's a message to be found, I, I want to come to it myself. I don't want to be clubbed around the head with it. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. Um, it, um, we have a topic or other question for the middle section which comes from Michelle thank you for getting in touch if anyone else has a question do get in touch at torbooks at gmail.com um, Michelle says I was wondering which authors you think would have been considered relatively lowbrow in their own time but whose books are considered classics now mm. um, any thoughts well I think probably Dickens Ah, do you think they were considered lowbrow when they were published? Oh, yeah, they were published in, you know, periodicals. People were reading them, you know, uh, in magazines. I don't think that they were... It was, he was very much a popular novelist, wasn't he? I mean, are people... Yeah, I was thinking he was one of those ones who was sort of all echelons, but maybe, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if Highbrow Society was reading him or not. And I, I wonder whether sensation novelists, I mean, we consider sensation novels to be classics these days. You can study them at university, but I mean, somebody reading Lady Audley's Secret or Wilkie Collins, et cetera, would, it, again, would have been lowbrow, trashy stuff that yeah. you read on the train and, you know, dump for the next person. Yeah, that's a good idea, good um, suggestion. The one that Michelle mentions that I agree with is Agatha Christie and I think more broadly detective novelists. Um, obviously there are some novels who were just churning them out but people like Agatha Christie and her contempor- some of her better known contemporaries 
you can certainly study them now. And I think maybe she's one of those ones who is still has wide appeal across um, different groups. Yeah, I, but I think I don't know if I'd agree with Agatha Christie on that one. I think she's still considered to. I mean, she's not a stylist as a writer. I mean, I wouldn't teach her. Maybe more like Dorothy L. Sayers then, or um, yeah. although I remember reading um, QD Levis wrote a, an interesting article about, I think it was called The Case of Miss Sayers or something like that, where she was one of those authors um, at the time who was considered to be highbrow by lowbrows and lowbrow by highbrows. <laughs> oh. Everyone sort of considered her as other. Um, yeah. But yeah, and there's some. Um, Going, I guess, along the line of sensation, there's things like Agar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan books and, and those sorts of things, which uh, I guess, I mean, they, would they be considered classics? They, they, you can certainly study them, but... Um, well, I think it's, it's interesting. I think age often indicates classic status for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. But actually, what do we define as being a classic? Um, and that's a deeper question of whether it's about popularity and readability and relatability across time even though I hate the word relatability or is it about <laughs> quality of of language um and people fall in different camps don't they if we're talking about a text that was read by everybody and that now is worthy of study today because of its contextual history and what it means to us as a you know culturally then there are loads of, of lowbrow books that we read nowadays. I mean, if we think about, you know, you could do courses in children's literature at university, you could read, mm. you know, Secret Garden, Peter Pan. I mean, they, that would not be considered highbrow literature at the time. So it's uh, wh where things have become, I suppose, emblematic of a particular culture. I mean, I know now there are courses where people could study the Harry Potter novels, for example. Yeah, I think you're right that it is largely age and the fact that maybe there was this whole lowbrow book market at one point, whereas now I guess lowbrow would just be not reading at all. It would be in other medium would be considered lowbrow. Um, yeah, whether that's you know a computer game or a comic or whatever. And I'm obviously not saying that those things are all lowbrow. I'm sure there are highbrow examples of those that I don't know anything about. But, um, but I think even the notion of reading a book at all is considered elitist by some people nowadays. Mm. Um uh, and particularly if that book is, you know, a hundred or so years old, I think it is. I, I don't think there's a there's a wide market of people reading books from a hundred years ago who would consider themselves doing that as a sort of, you know, trashy thing. Although having said that, I did read um, some Ethel M. Dell uh, for one oh. of the 1922 club or something, and it was complete trash. It basically was like the very worst sort of Netflix rom com in terms of plotting, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So you know, this, if people are looking for old trash, it's <laughs> still out there. <laughs> so have to dig a bit for it. Amazing. Well, hey, does that <laughs> question? Do you think? Yeah, thanks for sharing. I'd be interested to know other people's thoughts. These things are all subjective, of course, to an extent. Um, yeah. And then uh, under our final section, we're two Jane Gardam novels. Um, Rachel, we'd like to introduce us to Old Filth, and then I'll follow up with The Man in the Wooden Hat. I would love to. Um, so Old Filth is a novel that um, is the first in a trilogy and it focuses on the story of um, Sir Edward Feathers, who is known as Filth, which uh, is rumoured to stand for Failed in London, Try Hong Kong. Um, he, it, it's The novel starts with him at the end of his life and then we go back in time to see and in different periods of time to see how his life turns out. So 
he was born and brought up in what was then Malaya, I believe. Um, and orphaned, um, well, he was his mother died giving birth to him. And then we sort of see him being traveling to um, being taken back to England. Um, and then his uh, his legal career, his marriage, um, and his relationships with the people. And it's it's uh, essentially the story of a man's man's life, his achievements, his regrets, his emotional life, his professional life, um, and all told with um, a wonderful sense of humour. I won't, I mean, I, I can't detail all of it, but yeah, that's the summary, basically. Yeah, and um, as you say, this, this is, a, well, The Man in the Wind is the second in the trilogy, but, trilogy, but it is more uh, a retelling. It is mm. um, covers a, a lot of the same period, in some cases the same scenes, but um, broadly from his wife Betty's perspective. Um Although not entirely, there are bits that are that she's not feeling, and then there's bits in Old Filth that are from her perspective. So it's not completely, uh, you know, hermetically sealed, I guess. Um, and I say from her perspective, it's all in the third person, but it is about her. And uh, you see her meeting him, her deciding to marry him, uh, and then crucially, her sleeping with somebody else shortly before their wedding, and um, that lingering thought throughout her life. Uh, and again, we jump back and forth through the end of, um, or towards the end of Old Phil's life, uh, uh, and all these different stages leading up to it. Um, again, in similar sorts of places, it, it is in some ways a very simple plot, but you uh, you do get a bit of having a code breaker at Bletchley Park and uh, and these um, things that you don't quite see in the in the other one. Mm. And then there's a third one which I've not read, so who knows what goes on in that? Is, you you, you um, read it. I have read it. It's called Last Friends, and it tells the perspective of um, oh, what's his name? Veneering. Uh, Veneering, yes, who is the um, the sworn enemy of Old Filth and the um, the lover of Betty, his wife. Yes, which is uh, I can't remember if in Old Filth if that's obvious or if it's hinted at. Or if, I think it's or... hinted at, but not obvious. Yeah. Because you yeah. technically can read these in any order, um, yes. And it's interesting, you know, things that are hinted at in one of them are very obvious in, in the other, and you know, so yeah. Depending what order you read them, you're either saying I know what's going on and waiting for other people to catch up, or you, yeah, things that are, are big reveals in one of them are just sort of mentioned in passing in the other one, which I, I thought was yeah really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, and that happened you know, in both ways. Um. I had I read Odd Filth last year, uh, and then realised when you, you suggested this that I didn't remember anything about it. So I read it again this year, or just now, and um, then read The Man in the Wooden Hat, and I really enjoyed both of them. Um, but I'm try, I was trying to think what I. It's not really an obstacle, but what what made them seem different to normal novels I read, um, or to the other novels I read, and it felt uh, that both of them were like really really detailed character sketches of these people rather than novels so they, they both of them do have a sort of plot but they're really just here's a really interesting scene with these people doing something and here's another one and here's another one uh which i found very compelling but at the end i would have been hard pressed to say what what sort of momentum or gist of them were i guess uh, or even to separate between the two because there's so much overlap um so it felt to me like you know a great experience being around these these people but equally the scenes could have all been in a different order and it would have felt more or less the same to me does that make any sense 
Yeah, it kind of does. Um, I can see what you mean. Um, they are very much character-driven novels. They are both portraits of of people who have lived extraordinary but ordinary lives um, in the sort of British Raj, and then um, moving to Hong Kong. This um, they kind of embody, I guess, the ideas of colonialism and Commonwealth. Um, and being self-made, etc. There are many hilarious comic scenes, but I mean, I wouldn't agree with you that they that they don't connect or there's no sort of forward motion. I think the the scenes are carefully chosen in that they represent formative moments in their lives and they show how it's little things that form who we become, essentially. Um, mm. and, and I liked that kind of flitting between things and the extraordinary coincidences and the the smallness of our world and um the tiny decisions and the tiny um choices and chances that that happen and the amount of significance people attach to something that another person in the same situation attaches no significance to i think having that uh, these books that kind of speak to each other and and show people's opinion like different perspectives of the same events and um is so interesting and so powerful i mean bernadine everisto's girl woman other is is quite similar in in her one volume of book where you're, you're seeing different people's perspectives of the same thing and i think for me that's what made it such a um, and i read all three books in very quick succession i happened to find all three of them in the charity shop and i thought you know what i'm just going to do it to read these three books all together and I started reading Old Filth and just couldn't stop I found myself so engrossed in this man's story and his voice was so well created I mean I was just in bits at the end of them I mean I don't know what it maybe it was just I was reading at a particular moment where I was feeling emotionally vulnerable or something but <laughs> it was just I just couldn't put them down and I found them absolutely heartbreaking I mean these are such classic upper-class British characters who wouldn't actually call themselves British, I don't think, seeing as that they weren't ever, didn't really live in England ever until the end of their lives. But um, that inability to express themselves. And you also, like such, I mean, I'm just blathering on now, but wonderful description <laughs> of, of childhood trauma as well and what that does to children and what that did to children who were brought up miles from home, sent off to schools, packed off didn't ever see their parents except in the holidays um brought up in a culture outside of the one that they were supposed to belong in I mean I know all about that having worked in international schools for a very long time Mm -hmm. thinking about okay how did that style of of colonial colonialism sending people out to live in different parts of the world shipping children away to boarding school and so on how did that shape a whole generation of people because Old Filth and Betty and Veneering are, are kind of exemplars, I think, of, of a wider societal figures in many ways. You know, you've got the self-made man in Veneering um, who always carries a chip on his shoulder because of it. Um, it's, I just found it absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just love them. Absolutely love them. She's such a good writer. Yeah, to go back to the first half, um, I think... You're right, there's so much about colonialism, but she resists doing a sort of, here's a novel about why colonialism is bad, Mm. or here's a novel about why sending your children to boarding school is bad, but it is all just revealed through character. Um, And something about seeing these two books, and it may well be true of the third, is that she also resists 
in this marriage this this is the good person this is the bad person i feel yes. you get to the end of the two books having deep sympathy and affection for these two very flawed in different ways people and probably yes as i say probably in the third one you can add veneering to that list of people you um flawed people that you you feel um you know deeply and well and care for yeah. uh, and this yeah i think yeah the the i guess the two main most emotional things i connected with or not personally for my life but found really interesting was um in old filth it is about uh his relationship with his dad and wanting his dad's approval and never getting it mm-hmm. and, and um that thing about him writing all the time and his dad never wrote back with any finds that his dad kept all his letters and that was really a lovely moment oh my goodness um, i mean that yeah, just, yeah. I was <laughs> and then in um the man in the wooden hat it's uh for me it was about um them not being able to have children and the sort of casual way that that is referred to by other people or, or you know betty never wanted children then you see you know how desperately and un, but still unspoken the way that she wanted children like even within that marriage they didn't talk about the tragedy f- from their eyes of not being able to have children they just sort of suffered separately and yeah as you say you're so often wanting to say to them like please connect with each other connect with another person in some way yeah. rather than you know bottling it all in all the time but yeah she really gets across that british reserve and uh you know self-defeating reserve yeah, and I, I found that really interesting to have that kind of two perspectives because in Old Filth, their childlessness is barely mentioned and it seems mm. like it's actually, from Old Filth's perspective, it's, it's almost like a decision that they've made, you know, that mm. oh, mm. he seems to believe that his wife doesn't want children and is fine with not having children. But whether he's convinced himself of that or not, it's not clear. And then I was just blindsided when I read The Man in the Wooden Hat yeah. And then suddenly it was like, oh, no, she desperately wanted children. Desperate. And that has been the ultimate disappointment and failure at the heart of her whole life. And how how can you have a marriage of this length of time that has got this pain and hollowness at the center of it that's never been discussed by either of them? I mean, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, it's like the remains of the day all over again. I mean, I have a lot of yeah, and I think what's so clever about her writing is there are hints in Old Filth that he does suspect this, but it's never <laughs> that it has been a tragedy for her, but it's never discussed. And it's only yeah. hints that he's sort of it's like a topic he doesn't even want to go near in his own mind because it's, it would, yeah, it would need too much addressing. Um, yeah, and I think whilst you probably can read them in any order, it really does. Um, it really is valuable to read whichever order you, re- order you read them in to read them close to each other because you get so much more when you're seeing. The, the details that are mentioned in one and then picked up more in the other or that contradict each other or even yeah scenes that are remembered slightly differently um, mm. that we see in both of them and i think if you know even if you left a few months between them i think you probably lose some of the power of of that yeah no i think you're quite right and uh, for me I, I sort of read all three of them as if they were one book mm-hmm. but i think actually next time i read when i reread them because i will I might I might read them in a different order and see how their reading experience is. Yeah, yeah. Be an interesting experiment. Um Yeah, I had that a bit actually. I was reading Mary Lawson's books and rereading for the next episode that which I had not realised there was a few couple of characters from one who pop up from another, I won't say any more yet, but that was a lovely thing to see. Oh, they're here. And I do like that sort of intertextuality. That's why the moment. that, doesn't she? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I um, oh, it's gone. I can't remember what I was going to say. 
Oh yeah, the humor. Um, yeah, because you mentioned it's funny, and I I did find some of it funny. Like I particularly liked occasional stray lines. There was one I noted down about Betty saying she hates the North except Harrogate, which I thought was wonderful. Yeah. Um, I think the um Albert Ross was meant to be a, a comic character, and I really didn't know what to make of Albert Ross. Uh, can you talk about him for a bit? Albert Ross. Yeah, the, thoughts. Sorry. The I loved him. I thought he was hilarious, and I I think it's it's interesting because I mean when you I don't want to say too much about the third novel because obviously you haven't read it yet, no, but yeah. he's got quite a prominent role in in that, and he he sort of turns into more of a mythical than a real character, um, and I I just found him fascinating. So he's the person that um, old filth meets on a when he's being um evacuated on the on a boat and the boat gets um does it get torpedoed? I think it does get torpedoed. Oh, um, I don't remember that, but quite possibly. And they're kind of oh no it doesn't, sorry. They end up in um wash they they end up having to land in Africa um en route to being um evacuated to to Japan to Singapore and then while they're in the water um war breaks out with japan so they they get to where they're going and it's all being bombed so they have to go back again um and they kind of survive together on this trip and they they form this bond but he's like this it's not entirely clear where he's from or where he comes from but he and he seems he is a child but he doesn't look like one and he everyone also refers to him as being a dwarf so it's kind of uh he's this odd little creature that that comes in and he always just turns up at magical moments in um both Betty and um and Oldfield's lives and he also really is the person who gives Oldfield his start and his his career really he gives him his work in Hong Kong yeah. and gives him the opportunity was well, was also seeming to sabotage him at times yeah, he, it, I don't know he felt a bit actually sort of like a Dickensian character char- mm. um what's the word grotesque to me like um yeah so you really you you certainly don't get any insight to his inner life he's always just affecting other people's lives uh in quite extraordinary ways but everyone seems to take him in their stride like just yeah. except he's he's odd but uh I, I, well, I guess fourth volume and i'm hoping it's going to be from his perspective oh gosh yeah that'd be interesting yeah um i loved the stuff in man with the hat about um the relationship or friendship that uh betty develops with veneering's son when he's yes. starting when he's very young uh, and I get that that ties into her own longing for a child, but um, I thought it was very sweet. And that becomes, whilst she doesn't see huge amounts of him, it, it is clearly one of the most important relationships in her life. Yeah. Um, I use the word relationship broadly. Um, but I think, I think the parts that maybe I enjoyed most in both of them was the contemporary sort of... Veneering and um, Feathers end up living next door to each other in Dorset, yeah. which, you know, has to spend disbelief a little bit that they accidentally end up next door to each other, but don't speak to each other for the first three years they live there because they hate each other. Yeah. Um, and everyone's like, oh, there's another man in the neighborhood who's also a lawyer in Malaysia, Malaya. Uh, you should know him. He's like, no, not going to see him. He lives next door. I hate him. <laughs> but then very mm-hmm. suddenly <laughs> become friends. And I thought that, you know, I, I loved all of that and um, the way that. She depicts grudges that also can crumble in a moment if anyone makes the first move. And uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite sweet. You saw how much like children these old men were. 
Yeah, and I, I think as well, it, it's interesting at showing the contradiction between an external persona and an internal um, persona, because these both of these men are were kind of huge hitters in the legal field. Um, Old Filth is famous in particular for um, his work on um, pollution, I think, isn't it? And mm. he, um, you know, they're, they're considered to be giants in their field, legends, but all of that success and all of the money that they've earned and so on and so forth, you know, all they are really is, is frightened little boys inside. Um, And I found that so touching and, you know, a a reminder that, you know, we we don't ever really grow up, do we? We stay children. Um, We're just good at pretending not to be, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Have you read much else by, by Jane Garden. I've not read anything else by her, and um, I I would be very keen to have recommendations actually as to where to go next. Yeah, the only other one I've read is God on the Rocks, which I remember enjoying, but again, I don't remember anything about it. That's not <laughs> useful. But uh, is it a long way from Verona? Is her? I don't know. One of her better known ones. Right. Um, but yeah, as you say, she's still still writing. So uh, could be more. And a marvelous um, writer, absolutely marvelous. Yeah, very. She's very good at making something that's not super plotty feel very compelling. Yeah, it's um, a good talent. Um, okay, which are you going to choose? Oh gosh, it's a difficult one actually, um, because I mean they're both excellent for their own reasons. But I think I would go with Old Filth because um, I felt that that was my introduction to the story, and it's the one that I found probably most compelling in terms of its characterization of old filth and his story. Yeah, as you say, it's quite difficult because they do feel like they are the same book, so it's hard mm-hmm. to even find a dividing line. But um, I think I've already go for The Man in the Wooden Hat because I found the stuff about Betty and not being able to have children so so affecting and so well done. Um, that would just tip it that way, but you know, it really is very close. They do feel very much like they are the same, the same, um, yeah, the same extended work, really. Yeah. Yeah, have to read the third one before I forget anything that's happened. Yeah, you must. Um, And as we said earlier, in the next episode, we will um, unusually be doing more than two books. We'll be doing all the books of Mary Lawson, which is only four, sadly. I wish there were more. But uh, yeah, that's um, kind of Crow Lake, The Other Side of the Bridge, Road Ends, and A Town Called Solace. So I hope you can join us then with that guest who we will, uh, won't say now, but we'll reveal on the next episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining. Bye. Bye.